Hello and welcome to Coffee House Questions. This is Ryan Polly. We are continuing conversation that we started. This is part two with Fuzz Rana on his new book, Humans 2.0. Uh, Dr. Rana is one of the research, uh, the president of research and apologetics at Reasons to Believe, written a lot of awesome books. And this one that we're discussing uh, these two weeks is Humans 2.0, Scientific, Philosophical, and Theological Perspectives on Transhumanism. So, Fuzz, thanks for continuing this conversation with me. Yeah, Ryan, thanks for having me back. All right. So I had to cut you off. I apologize in that last uh, session that we had together where you were discussing kind of those implications of using CRISPR-Cas9 and creating designer babies and, and what this scientist had done in China and the ethical uh, issues that kind of come up with that. More specifically, uh, John wrote in on, on Facebook and says, you know, how does this scientific community limit the use of CRISPR-Cas9? You know, how do they enforce these guidelines? Yeah. What, what, what keeps someone from just secretly implanting that embryo or allowing it to live longer than it should. Yeah, and, and to me, this is the, the, the thing that is really frightening about CRISPR gene editing because, again, it, it is a very powerful technique. It's very inexpensive and very easy to use. Uh, it has actually spawned uh, something called a, a biology do-it-yourself movement, a biology DIY movement, and this is spearheaded by uh, a, a biochemist by the name of Josiah Zayner, who argues along with other people in this movement that why should this technology that is so powerful be in the hands of the elite? Why shouldn't everybody have access to the technology and be able to use it uh, again as we would like to use it? And this is where, again, this idea of the transhumanist vision where there's like a moral obligation to use technology to enhance human beings, where people have autonomy over their bodies and should be allowed to do whatever they want comes into play. So uh, Josiah Zayner is very much in the transhumanist camp in, in this respect. But the idea is that you could go on, because of the this biology DIY movement, you can go on Amazon and order for under $200 a CRISPR gene editing kit that you can have delivered to your house the next day if you have Amazon Prime. Wow. And that evening, do a, a CRISPR gene editing experiment on your kitchen counter. Now, it's a fairly benign experiment that you would do, uh, but it, it illustrates just how easy and accessible the technology is to use. Hmm. And, and so because of that, while you may have scientists who are willing to comply with government regulations about what how gene editing should be used and, and how it should not be used and and you may have professional organizations issuing guidelines as well, again, kind of guiding how the work should be carried out and, again, kind of you know limiting the types of experiments that should be done. There's nothing to keep somebody from setting up a private concern and going off and doing any kind of gene editing that they would like to do, again, because of the, the ease of use and, the, and the, the low cost. Or there's nothing to keep a country from refusing to follow guidelines that international bodies would put in place with the idea that by allowing for certain types of gene editing, particularly with an eye towards creating designer babies or doing gene editing in adults to augment intelligence or physical strength, you know, the idea would be that, again, you, you would, we would allow those things to happen in your country to create kind of a, a genetic tourism type of industry. And so this to me is where really where it's frightening. It's I'm not so much concerned about the quote unquote elites that have control of the technology, because I think there's a, a very high level of responsibility and motivation to try to use the technology 
really in, a, in appropriate and thoughtful ways. There still may be ethical issues that have to be sorted out, and there may be people with a range of perspectives as to what is or isn't ethical, but it's not it's not operating kind of in the rogue manner, right? They're trying to operate at least within the confines of, of the community, whereas what this chi- scientist in China did that we mentioned in the last program where he allegedly did the gene editing on embryos and then implanted them into a surrogate and took the, 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 those embryos to full term to birth, he's now operating as a rogue scientist. And, you know, the work was roundly condemned by the scientific community. I, it was condemned by China, at least on the surface, <laughs> you know, on, uh, at least at face value. Uh, there's nothing to keep a scientist like that from setting up an operation and getting private funding or, or, or creating a commercial operation in a, in a particular part of the world that's going to turn a blind eye towards it yeah. or even actively promote it. So we really are moving into kind of the wild, wild west of gene editing and, and really seeing transhumanism, you know, emerging, you know, uh, right before our very eyes. Uh, Josiah Zayner uh, at a foresight conference actually took a CRISPR gene editing kit that he designed to disable a gene for a protein called myostatin and injected himself in public, proclaiming himself to be the first person to be gene edited with CRISPR gene editing technology and the first person to do gene editing on himself. And so, you know, you very well could see people in the future, uh, you know, doing this, this biology DIY stuff and doing it to themselves without any kind of, you know, regulation. And there could be a lot of gene editing carnage that we see in our, our culture and our society because of this kind of an attitude. Yeah. And man, I think as I'm listening to you talk, it just even reminds me of other issues that are legal in culture, whether it be abortion or just certain aspects of in vitro fertilization that Christians would think is immoral. Uh, but the worldview of the people who are in power and creating these laws say, no, it's legal. Let's go for it. And so even that, it is an understanding of, look, even if there aren't these guidelines and regulations limiting the use, Christians need to be thinking critically about this so that we can understand how do we use these things well. Now, before we move on to other technologies, I know you do have a lot of expertise in the human genome. Uh, How would or do we even know how uh, correcting some of these genetic disorders, uh, we may correct one gene, is there a possibility that this affects others and then we give birth to this human and actually they have more issues because we weren't aware of these other side effects of correcting some of the genetic disorders? Yeah, yeah, that, that's a great point that you're you're raising. And, you know, for example, let's just use cystic fibrosis quickly as an, as an example. You know, here's a situation where you have a defective gene, a single defect, a, a single gene that's defective that causes cystic fibrosis. So the idea would be if you could go in and replace that defective gene with a healthy gene, splice out the defective gene and, and splice in a healthy version of that gene, you could at least correct the genetic disorder temporarily, or, or if you applied it to embryos, you could permanently correct that genetic defect in the individual. Now, that type of manipulation in and of itself should not cause any kind of unintended consequence. Okay. Now, the problem, though, with CRISPR gene editing is even though it's highly precise, we have discovered what are called off-target effects, where sometimes uh, the CRISPR uh, package will actually edit parts of the genome that you don't intend it to edit. And there's technical, complex technical reasons why that's the case. These are called 
off-target effects. So you could wind up with unintended consequences because of off-targeted effects when you're you're doing something like um, uh, again uh, you know correcting the cystic fibrosis gene. But if you're limiting that that treatment to you know cells in the lung that are already going to turn over anyway, those off-target effects may exacerbate the situation for the patient. But they they may but they they're going to be ultimately reversible or the patient will be able to clear out those changes uh, depending on how the treatment is done. But now another concern would be um, the types of the the type of gene editing that Josiah Zayner did because what he was trying to do was disable the gene for the protein myostatin and this is a gene that controls the growth of muscles it controls muscle growth and development. And so when you disable that gene, muscle growth and development happens in an uncontrolled manner. And so this is an example where, again, you might be able to enhance the strength of human beings. But because we don't know the full range of effects of the myostatin protein, it could be that when you disable that gene, you're doing something to the genome uh, that, that you didn't realize or you didn't understand. And that's where the unintended consequences can come into being. So, so yes, the, the bottom line is, you know, we can, we can do things that we don't mean to do, and that could be really catastrophic. And yeah. it's one thing if you're doing it to an adult patient, because whatever goes wrong goes wrong with that individual, and it's confined to that individual. But if you start doing it at the embryo stage, now you're altering that individual, and that individual has the capacity to transmit that genetic change to the next generation so that now enters into the human gene pool. And this is a real big concern that people have with doing gene editing on, on human embryos, even if they hold to an atheistic, materialistic worldview. Hmm. This is still an ethical concern that almost everybody universally shares. Absolutely. And even the embryo not being able to consent uh, to these sort of things, whereas the adult can say, hey, let's let's try this. But, you know, it may be experimental treatment or that sort of thing. Oh, yes, exactly. Uh, yeah. So, okay. So CRISPR uh, gene editing technology, definitely something that we need to be thinking about. Uh, in the book, you also talk about uh, neuroprosthetics, brain computer interfaces, and anti-aging technology. And so I want to kind of get a, a brief kind of introduction on what those are, as well as this kind of, I think, goes along with a question that came in on Facebook uh, from Greg of, you know, where does progress become mutation of what it means to be an image bearer? Kind of where is that ethical line? Because I think this is where it goes from giving you the example that you mentioned of a cochlear implant to allow somebody to hear better, but then uh, actually giving something ability that they couldn't have. So where's that line of when it goes from progress to mutation? Yeah. Well, you know, and the thing is, you know, with computer brain interface technology, it's, it's a rather amazing advance and the advances are happening at a breakneck pace in this area where you can develop these, these electronic interfaces that allow a patient uh, to control computer hardware and, and software with their thoughts, but they can also receive signals from these external devices that the brain can learn to process. Hmm. And so this is going to allow people, again, who are locked in to be able to communicate. It's going to allow amputees to have capacity con to control robotic prosthetic limbs. Quadriplegic and, and paraplegic patients can control exoskeletons, enormous amount of good with this. But what can happen with this technology and people are, are already exploring this possibility. And this is where the, the question that was posed comes into play 
is that you can begin to exert effects that become delocalized from your location in space and time. So, for example, because of, again, Bluetooth technology in the in the ability to access the Internet, uh, again, you know, if you, you could envision, well, th there's already experiments done where people are able to control, again, with their thoughts, robotic limbs in other locations halfway around the world. Wow. Or with my thoughts, I can actually control a robotic limb, again, in, a, in, a, in, a, in another location that is miles and miles and miles away from where I'm at on the other side of the world. And in fact, you with computer brain interfaces, you can actually again, with Bluetooth technology and the internet, I'll tether people's brains together in different parts of the world. So there's a, an experiment done where you had two test subjects with, again, both with computer brain interfaces in remote locations, and they both were playing a video game uh, on the computer, the same video game where both people were seeing that same game in real time. One patient learned to control essentially like a joystick operation with their thoughts, uh, and the other test subject in, an, in a remote location around the world would actually physically have access to the joystick. And one pay, test subject could, with his thoughts, get the other test subject to activate the joystick. So in that, that other person was doing that involuntarily. And so this is really bizarre stuff, but it yeah. begins to raise the question, now where do I begin and end as a human being, if I am able with this computer brain interface technology to access the World Wide Web and to engage another human being who has a who has that same interface, we can begin to exchange thoughts with one another uh, without communicating, you know, verbally or in written form. Uh, could I have experiences that I could somehow share with you? Uh, and so you have people like. Uh, Michu Kaku, the famous physicist who's uh, projecting that in the near future, the Internet will be replaced with the brain net, where we're, all of our brains will be interfaced through these computer brain interface technologies. And that we might have experiences through virtual reality that never have actually happened to us that we could then share with another person who not only didn't even have that, that experience, but even, didn't even have the virtual reality experience. And so it begins to create a situation where we're going to lose our identity or potentially could lose our identity and kind of meld into some kind of a brain net collective. And so this is a really bizarre, uh, you know, prospect for the future, but is something that really we're on the cusp of, of seeing happening. This, I mean, to me, that sounds like Matrix in the real world where you can almost just download immediate content into your brain, you're connected, and you have this virtual reality world and experience that's not actually happening in the real world. Is that kind of what it is? Is like a whole matrix world? Yes. I mean, it, it, we are on the cusp of something like that happening or some version of that happening. And, and, and again, you know, uh, I would be skeptical if I haven't, didn't see the studies <laughs> You know, you know, read the studies that were, have been published. And I know that things are progressing very rapidly in this area. Elon Musk has formed a company called Neuralink, where, again, this is part of what they're trying to accomplish is to create this kind of technology. So um, so this really raises questions again as to what does it mean to be a human being? And 
Uh, and so there's a real opportunity to lose our identity. And, uh, you know, um, and, and for people that that see, you know, things like the singularity as being, <laughs> you know, something to hope for where we attain immortality by uploading our our minds into a machine framework, this kind of advance leads people to, to think that this very well could be a possibility. Now, as a Christian, I have a very different view of the brain and the mind than people that are materialists. So I don't think that we're ever going to be able to do uh, to upload our minds into a machine matrix, um, you know, because I think the mind is immaterial. Yeah. Uh, you know, even though there is a, a mind brain interplay that takes place. But for somebody that's a materialist, this kind of advance really fuels the hope for the singularity. Uh, Ray Kurzweil's idea of the singularity and the, the hope of attaining some kind of immortality. But if, if nothing else, if the neural link or the brain, the, the, you know, the brain net comes into play, it's going to really create a lot of questions about, you know, what does, do we mean by in human individuality and human identity? So, I mean, this is just blowing my mind right now of, of all the possibilities and the things that are actually happening that I am also unaware of. Um, now, in your book, you do talk about uh, the difference between kind of this and a cosmetic surgery. And you mentioned here about uh, being able to give someone an amputee, a prosthetic limb, allow them to control this limb with their thoughts. And that is incredible. Uh, right. What then keeps us from taking someone, I think you mentioned this in the book, uh, from having perfectly functioning legs, uh, um, kind of, you know, removing their legs uh, installing or, or, or giving them prosthetics that can be controlled just so they can run faster, jump higher, uh, kind of have that advantage. Yeah. Well, and, and that, this is going to be, you know, some of the questions that we're going to have to wrestle through as a, as a culture, right. And as a society is, are we going to allow the technology to be used in that way? You know, um, it, you know, is that going to be something that is acceptable? And, you know, in, are we going to allow people to to mutilate themselves in order to, you know, enhance their physical strength or their intellectual capability? You know, and so, um, again, from a Christian worldview perspective, I'm not sure that there's anything inherently wrong with me wanting to be stronger and faster and making use of technology towards that end. But at some point, I think. Uh, as we start to look at altering our, bio our biological makeup, you know, so extensively, I think we begin to create a, 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 a scenario where, as a Christian, I would be very uncomfortable with what that represents in terms of loss of identity. But this is the complexity of, you know, of this technology is I could see two people equally committed to a Christian worldview, to a Christian to, to a pro-life position who could actually legitimately disagree about the extent of, of how the technology should be used for enhancement purposes, right? Uh, and so this is where, again, the complexity, you know, comes into play. Uh, I, I know intuitively that there's a line that we shouldn't cross, but I don't know that I can actually articulate where that line is, even though I've spent quite a bit of time thinking about this myself. So, uh, there's a very real need, I think, for the church to have uh, robust, rigorous conversations about these issues 
and where there's good theological work providing us with with appropriate guidance, you know, um, in terms of determining where those lines and those boundaries are. Wow. And so, man, in the last, we got about nine, eight, nine minutes. Um, I want to get to what I, I love about RTB is, is it always bringing this kind of back to the gospel, but, but kind of in getting there, uh, the book does talk about this idea of human exceptionalism. Obviously not all worldviews believe that there's something unique about human beings as being image bearers of God. Even uh, David wrote in on and on Instagram, kind of with this objection of, you know, aren't humans just kind of the parasites of Earth? And if we can, you know, make ourselves better, so we're not just sucking up resources, then it, wouldn't that be a good thing? So, how does human except- exceptionalism and the image of God kind of play into how we should respond ethically uh, to transhumanism? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, for I've heard some people argue that, you know, transhumanism will put an end to the the idea of human exceptionalism once and for all. Because if we have to modify our biological makeup to improve upon it, that means we weren't all that great to begin with. Uh, and, and so therefore, we really aren't exceptional. But I would actually argue that it's human beings uniquely that have the ability to even contemplate taking control of our own evolution to develop the technology uh, to the point where we can actually entertain something like transhumanism. And so ironically, transhumanism doesn't. Uh, undermine human exceptionalism, I think it presents one of the most clear-cut uh, pieces of, of evidence for uh, human exceptionalism. And if we can argue that humans are exceptional and show that that exceptional nature lines up with the image of God concept, we've got a scientific case that we can make for the image of God. And ultimately, the ethical framework that I think we're going to need to properly deliberate on how the technology should be used and how we should avoid and what technologies we should avoid uh, is going to have to be based on a Christian worldview and the image of God concept, which, uh, you know, uh, encourages the development of science and technology, uh, wants to see human pain and suffering minimized, wants to see human progress, but also recognizes that there are boundaries uh, that cannot be crossed, that we never will permit another human being to be exploited for the sake of the good of the whole uh, or that we want to ensure that everybody has access to the technology and can participate, that there's an equitable distribution of the technology. Uh, and so the Christian worldview, I think, which is based on the image of God, is going to be so critical in terms of shaping the conversations and, and advancing, I think, conversations about how the technology should be used. And you mentioned in your book that it, has possibly that it's gone from simply trying to attain progress uh, to actually the means to attain salvation for humanity. Uh, and that really the gospel is what offers us true immortality, which is really what people are trying to get with the anti-aging and with uh, transhumanism is trying to live forever. And I love how you finish off uh, the kind of last section of the book uh, t- discussing the resurrection of Jesus and how that is so key and central to really what people see as the need and why we need transhumanism, but really the resurrection giving us true hope for this. So how does the resurrection of Jesus fit in with the science of transhumanism and Jesus? editing? Well, I mean, ultimately what, what transhumanists want is really, you know, again, the, the very same thing that, that uh, we want as Christians as well. We want to see a utopian future where there's not pain and suffering, where human beings flourish. Uh, we want to see uh, a, a future where there is no death, where death is conquered, where human beings 
live uh, forever, that where we have a form of immortality, uh, we would call that eternal life as Christians. Uh, and and yet we what we recognize is that technology is never going to get us there. Uh, technology is a wonderful tool that helps us to usher in the kingdom of God and expand the influence of the kingdom of God, but it's never going to be the source of our salvation. That salvation is only going to be found in the person of Christ, and it's through Christ that we will enter into the new heavens and the new earth and have a, a genuine utopia and we'll have genuine, genuine immortality and eternal life. And so what I see transhumanism doing is really exposing the need that everybody has for the gospel. And if we see those bridge points, those connecting points as Christians, it's going to give us unprecedented opportunities to talk about the relevancy of the gospel uh, in, in, a, in a transhumanist age with, with uh, again, the idea that this is the only source of hope. And, you know, when it comes to the resurrection of Christ, what we see with Christ's resurrection is that his body was a glorified body, right? And, and that is what we have to look forward to as well, is a glorified body in, when, when we, you know, enter into the new heavens and the new earth. And, and so in a sense, you could see Christianity is really transhumanism as the true form of transhumanism, where, you know, in the new creation, when we're raised from the dead, uh, we're going to have those bodies that transhumanists are trying to create with technology. But what a great opportunity for the gospel to go forth. Absolutely. So in our last kind of two minutes, are there some kind of practical steps uh, that you can kind of give to help Christians better engage people who believe that technology is the key to future? Some things that they can listen for in conversations or some kind of key talking points along with the resurrection, what we just talked about. Yeah, yeah. To, to me, I think what I would look for is, again, what is motivating these individuals' desire to promote transhumanism, to talk about transhumanism, and, and to, 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 to identify what that ultimate desire is, and then, again, use uh, transhumanism or use the gospel as a way to, to connect, again, that need that's being expressed with the, need, uh, the hope that's offered within the gospel itself. And you know, I think we also need to understand as well as Christians that technology uh, never truly delivers on its promises. And we need to be able to articulate why technology is ultimately a counterfeit gospel. And this is one thing, as I mentioned before, that I love about Reasons to Believe is in the conversations I have with Hugh Ross or Jeff Swearing on, on cosmology in the beginning of the universe, uh, to you on, on, on human exceptionalism and transhumanism, to Ken Samples on, on the issues that we've discussed in Logic, is it comes back to the gospel of that you find, as Hugh Ross talks about, new reasons to believe, that through scientific advancement, uh, you find that the general population likes talking science. And I've, and I've mentioned this before with students, so that you come up to someone and you want to talk about Jesus or you want to talk about, you know, invite him to church and you're going to get a lot of pushback and people who don't want to talk about that. But if you come up and say, hey, what do, what do you think about this idea of, of you know, becoming superhuman, you know, with, with technology? Or what do you think about this idea of the beginning of the universe? Or what do you think about creating designer babies and being able to choose eye color for your children through gene editing? Uh, people have some thoughts on that. Uh, but then being able to point that back to who we are as the image of God, uh, who we are created and designed to be, uh, what really is the hope or the desire that humans have is to live forever, forever immortality, and then pointing them to that Jesus is that true example, that Jesus is the solution. 
I love it. And so I just love uh, this book and how you guys are able to tie those things in and, and bring it back to the gospel and give ways for people to engage people on the street, engage people at their work. And so I really do appreciate what you guys have done with this. Thanks, Ryan. So Fuzz, thank you so much for joining me on this. And again, for listening, go check it out. But thank you for taking the time to work through some of these big and important issues that you talk about in your book. Yeah, thanks again for having me. It's always been fun. It's always fun to hang out with you. Thank you. Well, I hope you guys all enjoyed that interview. I know it was a lot of content for me. Uh, Hopefully you got some good stuff out of it as well, as well as got deep into some science. Go check out Humans 2.0 by Ken Samples and Fuzz Rana for more important and interesting information regarding transhumanism. Also, make sure you come back next week. I have my interview with Justin Brierley. It's been recorded. It was a fun conversation as we discussed what he's learned doing the Unbelievable podcast and radio show for over 10 years, as well as the upcoming Unbelievable Live conference in LA on October 11th and 12th. So that was a fun conversation. Make sure you don't miss that one next week. Also, I'd love for you to partner with Coffeehouse Questions in a few ways. One, you can give this a rating on your podcasting app so other people can see it and see that you like it. You can share it with your family or friends so they can enjoy it as well. Or also you can go to patreon.com slash Ryan Polly and partner financially. I would really appreciate it. Hope you guys have an awesome rest of your day and I'll talk to you later. Love God, sip coffee, Think deeply. This is Coffeehouse Questions with Ryan Polly. Just won't hesitate to follow your love will guide